Welcome to the Egyptian Streets podcast, Kahirat edition. Kahirat are overpowering, victorious. They are Egyptian women. I'm Nuran, your storyteller for this season. The Egyptian woman is multifaceted, creative, and absolutely powerful. She comes in all fields, roles, and worlds. This summer, Egyptian Streets is bringing you stories of 10 Egyptian women from Al Qahira to the world. 10 women, 10 stories, endless power. My name is Rwaita Abdelaziz. I am a reporter and journalist based in New York City in the US. Um, I come from an Egyptian family. My, my parents, both Egyptian, um, from Iskandreya, uh, immigrated to the U.S. in the 90s, where I was born and raised. Ruwaida is an Egyptian-American journalist who works at the Huffington Post. She covers Islamophobia in the U.S. While most of her life was spent in New Jersey, she spent four years in Alexandria in her younger years. Uh, shortly after the September 11th attacks, life was getting a little bit difficult in the U.S. Uh, as immigrants, as Arabs, as Muslims. And it was also an extension of extreme homesickness. And so we moved to Skindereya, where both of my parents are, are from and where they met and were married. We lived there for about four years before I moved back. And, and that part of my childhood really formed not just my professional career, but everything that I am, it allowed me to really get to know my culture. When I landed in Cairo, I'll never forget, both in the summers, um, and especially when we, we did move there semi-permanently, was the amount of family that showed up at the airport. You know, I come from a large family, and it wasn't just perhaps the one uncle that was going to do the drive from, from Cairo to Skandaria, which is, you know, quite the drive. And usually they try to limit the amount of people so we can maximize all the luggage because we were bringing our entire lives. But everyone came. I just remember stepping out of the airport and hearing the screams and shouts of Dozens of people, I want to say perhaps 15 people, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, who, who came and welcomed us. And it's just such a stark memory because whenever we came back, it was never that. I think we were perhaps picked up by one uncle. And it was just because the one uncle that we happened to have here. As a kid, I was definitely, I was overwhelmed, of course, all of your Egyptian cousins yelling and screaming at you out of excitement, a different sense of humor. And so I think definitely overwhelmed on, on the one hand, but also just feeling a different kind of deep love to people who've never lived with you or never spent more than three months at a time with you, but uh, took you in as your own. I remember sitting in the car and the first thing my cousin did was take my watch off um, off my arm so he can set the time for me, uh, another one having snacks. And so this is just this immediate welcoming to, you know, this is home now in all sense of the word. And, I, and that's something I can never forget. Did you ever feel like, oh, do we have to go to Egypt again? Or, or was, was it exciting? No, it was always exciting for us. And I think it's because, you know, my family made it intentional that it was exciting. I think sur being surrounded by uh, so many relatives, lots of cousins who are my age, I think, uh, made the trip really thrilling in, in so many ways. I mean, there really wasn't a day that went by where we didn't have company. And I think there was an intentionality behind gathering. And so it was always exciting. I think uh, the only perhaps things I didn't look forward to was having my Arabi made fun of. I think that was daunting on the plane ride over, just thinking about that, uh, perhaps choosing to be silent instead of engaging because it, uh, I would get my um, my my gender nouns always confused. And so they, that was their, definitely their favorite thing to, to pick on. Mm -hmm.
What Ruwaida's time in Egypt helped shape her and her future where she becomes a journalist, being a minority in the US was the bigger push. I faced my own microaggressions um, in subtle forms as a kid and more explicit forms as an adult. And I think my frustration with the one-dimensional view of our people, both you know, of from you know an ethnic background or a religious background, made me really angry to be quite frank and i think it's that anger that channeled me to want to do something about it to go on to study journalism at university and and start my career in journalism and dedicate my career in journalism to talking to those who are never talked to but always talked about and it was really important for me that i added more complexity and nuances and difference and complicated this very one dimensional narrative of you know brown people that came from this region that all practiced the same faith that looked the same and spoke the same and it wasn't all negative i mean there were definitely lots of positives and lots of great learning experiences i mean you you meet a fellow um, Egyptian or a different Arab in schooling or at work or wherever, and you have this immediate shared connection that you because it's the solidarity that you want to be together. And so I think beautiful moments have been created from from this uh, being this minority identity, but it also had a lot a lot of challenges as well. You know the story. Egyptian daughter wants an unconventional career, and parents disagree. But Truida never backed down. In high school, I worked for like a local newspaper um, where I was able to learn about the basics of journalism, how to write a lead, what is a deadline, how do you pick a good photo, how do you interview folks, etc. And so, you know, I was having this first introductory experience and, and so were my parents. But for the longest time, it was seen as a hobby, right? And it was a hobby that came from a child who loved to write and who loved to read. And so this is how I grew up. I would scribble. I was not very artistic. I was not that great in math. And so, you know, I would get in trouble for reading books um, during math class because I was struggling in math. And so my parents knew my my affinity for the the skill set that are attributable to journalism, right? So the reading and writing. Um, but when I got to university, no, it was it was incredibly challenging to to formally say like this is what I'm going to major in and this is what I want my career to be. And then I remember distinctly that my parents they they struggled with this, and the struggle came in a number of different forms. They didn't really know what journalism was, right? Because when you think about journalism and media in the US and you think about journalism in Egypt, right? They're very different coming from a place that is still struggling for independent free press. The other aspect of it is also being immigrants. Um, there's also the challenge of wanting to your child to be successful, but also defining su- success in a very specific way. And also ones that they've seen work here in the US and that used to be the STEM fields, right? So I grew up knowing that it was be a doctor or be an engineer, right? Those were the 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 jobs that were not just looked upon with honor, but also meant like you won't have to struggle financially like perhaps we have and that you will be a lot more stable and can go to sleep at night without worrying like we worry. And so when I come at them with a field like journalism, they were worried. And and it came out of a place of love. At the peak of their despair, they brought over a cousin of mine who um, is is a well-accomplished doctor and, you know, mashallah does well for himself to, to, I came home from school one day and he was just like hanging out in our living room and this person lived quite far. So I was just like, why why is he here? And why is he here alone? Right? It wasn't like an Azuma or a a birthday or a milestone. And the reason was so that they can have him, someone who was quote unquote, 
first generation like me who was more similar more relatable to me to kind of talk me out of the field and so it didn't go over well. Ruaida's parents grew to be supportive of her work over time and she worked in the journalism field. Her work gained notoriety at the Huffington Post. I joined HuffPost um, first on their world news desk and so continuing covering uh, the media department again with a huge focus on Syria because that was like the big topic at the time focusing on the refugee populations that were uh, starting to form here in the U.S. Also I was doing a lot of coverage of Yemen and the Yemeni uh, refugee um, situation in the U.S. as well Um, and I did that for a few years um, on the world desk. And then after I actually switched out of editorial for a little bit and turned over to the social media analytics side um, at HuffPost still. And so I worked on managing and curating all of our social media sites, our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram pages, working on the data behind it, what was posting well, where to post what story when, helping shape headlines and tweets and Facebook statuses, working with partners to, to leverage our social media sites. In 2016, when Trump became president, Ruaida switched to reporting on the Enterprise desk. And so that's kind of the desk where we get to write more long-form stories. You kind of get to focus on one particular uh, type of topic. And that's when I started focusing on Islamophobia um, and, you know, issues covering the wider Muslim Middle Eastern, South Asian communities in the U.S., uh, focusing more on national politics and what was happening inside here in pivoting away from from foreign policy. Um, And that encompassed a wide range of issues. I was covering issues like the Muslim travel ban on a national level. I was covering individual hate crimes um, on a local level um, and just talking about the different challenges. And again, going back to the challenging the stereotypes and complicating the one dimensional narrative that we saw about the brown folks, right? No matter where they happen to come from and that they all fit this one bucket. And so um, I've been in this position since. And so um, even though it's been HuffPost this entire time, I think it's uh, over six years now um, at the news company, but I was been able to hold three different roles doing three very different things broken up in between them. And in media world, it's a lifetime to, to be there for over six years, but it's been a very rewarding six years. While at HuffPost, she came across two Yemeni men with a fascinating and tragic story. They both had fled Yemen. They didn't know each other when they were in Yemen. And they both met when they were in Ecuador. And they had decided to go to Ecuador because Ecuador is one of the few countries that accepted a Yemeni passport because being having a Yemeni passport... Um, your options are very limited and, and Ecuador has one of the more lax visa uh, requirements for, for folks from, from any country. And they were planning on settling there and, and living there until they faced, you know, political threat there as well. They were jumped by uh, sympathizers, by the armed Houthi uh, militia rebel group. And they decided to make the journey from Ecuador and South America all the way to the U.S because they wanted a chance at safety and freedom in life. And they crossed perhaps six to seven countries, both on foot and through buses. They crossed through jungles. They slept up in trees. They were jumped by smugglers. They um, had most of their stuff taken from them. And these are men who are Arab, who didn't speak nor English nor Spanish came to a point of despair that they really needed to 
find a place where they can live safely. And these are not people who could have hopped on a plane and came to the U.S. because Trump had had, had put the Muslim ban at the time and, and Yemen was uh, on the, those countries. And when they did finally cross and made it to the U.S. several months later, later having survived the most horrible things I remember talking to them about them seeing corpses and bodies and didn't think that they were going to make it. They were immediately detained by immigration officials in the U.S., put in detention and were denied uh, a you know credible fear be- being told that they didn't have legitimate fear to uh, stay in the U.S. and they were going to be deported back to Yemen. And that's kind of when I came in and I, I knew of their story when they were being held in, in detention. So I spoke to them nearly every day for uh, several months while I was piecing together their stories. And I couldn't go see them because the pandemic was in full swing. I had plans to go to the detention center and meet them. And we kept this relationship until I published a, an investigation, a full story, talking about the various challenges that they faced, the immigration aspect of this the human humanizing aspect of the level of despair that they went through, the the Islamophobia that they went through. One of the men was was facing in detention, being his name was Osama, and so being mocked for that name and for his faith. They were fasting Ramadan one month, and for a system that was just built against them because they were men, they were young men, they were brown men, they were Muslim men, they were men from Yemen, they were men who came from the southern border, and. Uh, frankly, uh, almost had no chance of, of being given a fair trial. And after our investigation uh, published, they were both granted new interviews. And at those new interviews, the asylum officers decided that they did have a valid fear of returning. And then they were both released and are currently both living in New York City, working. One has fully gotten all of his paperwork. The other one is finishing it up in court. And their lives are insanely different from what they thought it was going to be, where they knew if they were deported, they were not likely going to live. And so that's one of the stories that not just taught me so much of the technicalities of journalism in terms of interviewing and um, interviewing people who've been through trauma, learning about immigration laws of various countries, but also just the humanity behind people who are constantly demonized. You know, we, we when you think of young men as immigrants and migrants or refugees, they don't get that sympathy as if they were like women or children, but also uh, connecting with them on a different level because I was able to speak out of me, you know, I was able to interview them. We had a shared religious identity that made them uh, feel comfortable to, to speak with me. Um, and putting together that package was was took a lot of hard work, a lot, a lot of hard work, but one that has taught me so much um, and I'm so incredibly, you know, proud, proud of. Wow, that that is incredible how journalism can have such an impact on real life situations. So I'm sure you've heard of the quote unquote Burkini ban in Egypt and of course in other places abroad, especially in the West. Beyond the daily fight for basic rights and existence, what are your thoughts on the status of simply Muslim woman joy? I mean, at the end of the day, what we're striving for is a, a, the right for choice. And I think, you know, the issuer is when that right has become codified into rule or law that doesn't allow us to, to enjoy those rights. And so, you know, I can speak on ours for the examples here in the U.S., you know, in in yes, to a certain extent, we have the laws in the systems that that 
that are there to, to benefit us. And, you know, that's both a pro and a con. I mean, the system here in the U.S. is also one that is still deeply flawed and, and problematic and not everyone seeks finds justice in that way. Um, and Egypt is no different in, in that regard. I mean, you know, Egypt is somewhere where perhaps that if, if you do um, are a Muslim woman or you're practicing or devout, there's still to a certain extent the stereotype that you are not educated and that you're not intellectual or that you are also one dimensional, right? That you could only be a person of deep faith and not be an intellectual in, you know, the sciences or the liberal world or, or anything outside of faith, right? As if these two things clash and we see it in the representation of our, even our films and our cinema and our, our, our music we see it codified like you mentioned in um in the resorts in certain locations that a hijabi can't come in and so even if you're in a muslim majority country let's be real muslim majority countries can also perpetuate islamophobia and they do right whether it's Muslim or, or other countries and they do it in in different ways ways that are very political and we can whoever we're talking about we're talking about Muslim, we're talking about Saudi, we're talking about whatever you know they all have the overlapping issues and concerns it's just a matter of the way that it is implemented and so it, it absolutely makes me furious that every time I think about the the burkini bands and the hijab bands um in in mosque um it, it really makes me so angry because again it takes away the women's rights to choice and the policing of muslims bodies and it's hypocritical right if the certain people see you want to fight for muslim women's rights or out of women's rights in Musr or in France, right? There's a huge conversation happening in France right now about the, the hijab bans. And and we do the same thing. I mean, the issue becomes whether we're talking about the patriarchy or whether we're talking about um, a system, the, the systematic policies in place, we're still fighting the same thing. We're still fighting people who are putting uh, bans into law for reasons that are nonsensical, that perhaps makes sense for them. And I've heard a, a number of, of attempts at justification as to why they do the burkini bands at these resorts or, or whatever. But you know, let's be real, no law in the U.S. can prohibit um, me from swimming anywhere, right? And this is something that I can take to court. And so it's just disheartening that in, in Musk, for example, that this is not something that I can legally take to court and not of, you know, not now and not to say the courts are very effective there either. But nonetheless, I think, that, again, it's acknowledging the commonality of the systems and the patriarchy and, and, and the rule of law that doesn't give women the right of choice, but rather makes that decision for them and says, well, this is better for you because we know that it's better for you. And it's absolutely condescending and it's absolutely backwards and it's absolutely hypocritical. And so especially when it comes to swimming and I'm just more passionate about swimming because I happen to write a story about the challenges Muslim women in the, in the U S face while swimming. And I touched upon a number of aspects. I mean, the reason why we can swim freely is because of the policing that happened to black Americans in the U S when they were prohibited from swimming in the same pools as whites. And so there's historical context there. And the irony that this is also happening in a world that modest fashion is on the rise and we're seeing exactly, uh, hijabi yeah. models um, come <laughs> out on the cover of magazines, which is all incredible. And we applaud and we want yeah. to see, but yet, you know, they were still um, uh, facing issues here in the U.S. I mean, some of it was just ignorance, people thinking uh, the not realizing like, the swimsuit material made for modest swimwear was the same as a two piece. Right. And so it was a matter of changing the laws because oftentimes they they make it into a, a safety concern or a health concern. Again, the same 
uh, reasons that they weaponized against Black Americans. Um, sometimes it was just a matter of they didn't know any better. And so it takes the humili humiliation of one Muslim woman to to set a precedent for, for everyone else. And, and that absolutely shouldn't happen. And then there's just like the general anxiety of being a young Muslim woman, or even you're just a woman who wants to cover modestly at, at the beach, because there are women who do, who come from, you know, other immigrant backgrounds, or even who are white and choose to dress this way. And they have, have the right to, but uh, there's a lot of the emotional burden and the anxiety of what if someone looks at me differently? What if who is judging me, right? And not having that liberation and that freedom to just have a good time. And I think when that's policed anywhere, you know, in in the US or in Egypt or anywhere in, in the world, it's hypocritical. Um, and it's absolutely in, infuriating to see, especially when one of these locations wants to champion freedom over the other. And we see it both ways. We see in the U.S., right, when we see we hear the slurs to, to, to immigrants or people who come from the Middle East, they're told, well, if you if you were in the Middle East, you would have never had the opportunity to succeed. Uh, you're lucky to be here. You're grateful to be here. Right. So we see that here and we see that same type of savior complex if you're an Egyptian. And right. Like you mentioned, when looking to Muslims who live abroad and, and victimizing uh, us who live here. And so there's an irony there that both sides of the world look at the women in the same angle and in both in both situations that they're still not given what they want. The Muslim women just want their choice to dress as they want without it being codified and weaponized against them uh, in a way that's not patriarchal, in a way that's not systematic, in a way that's not discriminatory. And there's, there's commonality there that we wish didn't exist. And finally, looking back at everything you've shared with us and your trajectory as a journalist, what is something you wish you'd known or did 10 years ago? I wish I would have given myself more credit. Absolutely. I think being a woman, being a visible Muslim woman, being an Arab woman, um, it took a shot at my confidence in, in regards to what I was capable of. And so I would definitely tell myself to not sell myself short and to not struggle with the imposter syndrome. I wish I had someone to tell me or wish I had knew for myself um, to not have been so hard on myself and, and to have kept fighting and I think I alhamdulillah I did keep fighting and it is the reason why I am here but I think a little bit more self-kindness and self-mercy um, would have would have gone a long way thank you Ruwaida for gracefully sharing your story with us as one of our coherot the Egyptian Streets podcast is edited and produced by your host, yours truly, Noron Marsi. Thank you to the team at Egyptian Streets for supporting the work we do. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can check out our past season on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating to help us reach even more listeners. Thank you for listening. I'm Noron Marsi.